Good morning and welcome to another episode of An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life. Today, season two, episode four. Is it episode four? Maybe episode five. Five. I don't know. One one or the other. Either way. No, it's five. It's, oh, it's five. It's episode five. Episode five. Can you believe yeah. it? How time flies when you're discussing virtue and ethics. As usual, I find myself with my partner in crime. Not in that way. Uh, Mr. Adam <laughs> Johnson, he is uh, a, a man. He's bespectacled. He he's he's wearing a jumper, and he has many other good qualities as well. <laughs> well, thank you for that ringing endorsement, Nick. You know, my my pleasure, my pleasure. You know, you you always take uh, such pains, go to such lengths to introduce me eloquently and elegantly. So I thought I would return the favor, and uh, here we are. Here we are. How are you doing, Adam? Yeah, I'm. I'm all right. I'm. I'm fine. It's um, it, it it's always a little bit weird it, weird to to do this question at the beginning. I think because um, it, it feels proper to start the podcast with this little element of politeness. However, um, dear listener, behind the scenes, we have been talking on the phone for about half an hour before recording this podcast, and that's usually how it works. So, um, to to sum up for for the listener, yeah, I'm fine. I've. Uh, <laughs> My 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 life at the moment consists of of coffee and the gym and and sort of vaguely looking for for employment. So um, yeah, that's, but, but that's, stress that's vaguely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not a well thought through yeah. operation that we're running here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I I um, I, uh, I agree with that. I think that um, it is kind of polite, you know, and th- there is a middle ground though, you know, there's always, you know, there's always a, a, a witty way of saying, saying something, uh, you know, you don't want to spill out like your whole existential depression, but you don't, you know, if maybe, you know, fine, 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 fine maybe fine cuts it. That's, you know? that's also, for a different podcast. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that whoever does yeah. the introduction, you, you have to start in a happy mood. Like it projects you into yeah. the happy mood and by default to balance things out, the other person becomes jaded and depressed so actually i blame my bad moods on your fucking chipper introductions <laughs> yeah because this this podcast is all about getting the yin and yang right like, exactly we exactly we're a team have we're a team we have to balance each other out complement each other you know which which we do yeah. far too little of we do we do uh, but i'm the miserable one this episode so i'm not yeah. going to um compliment yeah, i kind of like I'm being this happy I mean, I'm scared because I know it won't last, but. <laughs> so. Oh, gosh. Well, existentialism. What a, what a place to start out. Yeah, that's no, not that's what, not, we're, talking that's about not today, what we're talking about today. <laughs> in fact, what we are talking about today is, as I mentioned slightly earlier in uh, this, frankly, outstanding introduction, uh, the best, the best yet, I might say. Um, <laughs> but maybe, maybe I'm biased is uh, is uh, continuing our topic of virtue where we previously discussed uh, politics as a broad conception and um, particularly the politics of direct democracy that are implemented in part mm-hmm. in Switzerland as well as in other European countries. We're, um, and having uh, followed on that conversation from activism and a few other things before then, what we're now talking about today is charity. So I believe the context for that is um, the spirit of charity and, and where it arose and potentially what its limitations are. And Adam's going to provide us an overview of, of that and its role within um, British cultural, political, socioeconomic consciousness. And I mm-hmm. will also at some point talk about the Red Cross, which I have some 
insider info about that you could also very easily acquire if you Googled it. <laughs> yeah, you got it from the inside, but it's not necessarily yeah. inside. Kind of like info. education, you know, like nothing I learned on my degree wasn't also free on the internet. <laughs> but, yes. you know, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Four years and several thousand pounds later. <laughs> <laughs> um, an unspeakable number of thousands later. And none um, the wiser. None the wiser. So Adam, um, yeah. you're you're going to you're going to lead the first segment. Uh, are you um, going to introduce it with a quote, or are we breaking with tradition? No, I'm, I've got a quote. You have a quote. Oh, hit, a me, quote. Hit, me, hit me with yeah. a quote, Adam. Uh, so this quote is from uh, Mr. Charles Dickens, mm. uh, and it's. A day wasted on others is not wasted on oneself. A day wasted on others is not wasted on oneself. Oh, yeah. Good old Charles Dickey. With his, As he liked to be known. <laughs> with his witticisms. You got to appreciate that. No, that's true, actually. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noble sentiment. I think it says a lot. You know, although wasted on others... You know, he could have maybe found a nicer way to phrase that, but you know, uh, I, I get what he's saying. I get what he's saying. Yeah, he could he could have put it nice because wasted on others implies that um, it implies that 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 it had no benefit for them. <laughs> as exactly. If you were, as exactly. if you repainted their house without them asking you to, or um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you know, uh, I don't know why that's the example. Well, but, Charles Dickens contributed like, to the popularization of. Um, charity as well for lack of a better way of putting this an aesthetic of the wealthy yeah um, and the middle class uh, do you have some more insight into that adam did you pick charles Dickens for a reason i do because broadly what i'm going to be talking about um is is charles dickens and uh and henry mayhew his his sort of friend and um collaborator in in attempting to to alleviate the struggles of the sort of new urban poor in, in victorian london um, but just before I do, the, well, just, uh, just, just, uh, just, just before you get to that, well, the just Victorian before I era, get to the thing but, before the thing that I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and before all of that, let me just say uh, <laughs> yeah. the Victorian era, 19th century, basically, uh, to, to know, yeah. it's the era at which Queen Victoria reigned 1830 yeah. to like 1901, something like that. Yeah. So broadly that. Yeah. Yeah. Time of rapid industrialization. Uh, people flood in that time. London's population grew from one million to more than three million, um, so on and so forth. Yes, yes. Um, I too have run out but, of facts. Let's go. Moving. <laughs> but before before going into that, I, I just, just a few notes on charity in general. And I think, although it's obvious, it's important to say what charity actually is. Right. And I think it's broadly accepted that um, charity is is finding a way often monetary but not always of of helping those in need um which does not come from uh state or commercial actors now um there can be state funded charities and there can be commercially funded charities but the act itself doesn't have any aim other than to help people who need um and there are now there there are criticisms of 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 charity for this reason, right? Is that so? It could become a, a substitute for justice, a substitute for the role of the state in providing a social safety net. And there are some um, libertarian types who 
who argue for the abolition of government for this reason that the social safety net should be provided by charities and um, often often in in american context religious organizations are, are mentioned in in this context um very often there are charities attached to to religious organizations um but charities can also be used to petition states um to to enact for to to claim for wider reaching uh wider reaching change uh for example there are 5725 charities which have a uh, consultative status at the united nations right? they uh, with the economic and social um council um that said, I, I want to take a look, a specific look at, at how this sort of petitioning and, and the role of, of, of the state versus the individual played out in Victorian London for Dickens and Mayhew. Right. Now, they both felt very strongly about this issue, seeing, seeing poor, the, the poor and the struggles of, of, that they had throughout their lives, um, and thought, we've got to do something about this. And Dickens decided to address the issue through beautiful per- prose and um, uh, and sweeping scenes and characters that, yeah. that people love and still remember to this day. And at right? times, not so beautiful prose too. But you know, at times, not so. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, and Henry Mayhew uh, wanted to, to accomplish a similar task, but he did it with hard facts and figures. Um, Mayhew, uh, less on him because he's, he's a less well-remembered figure, but... Um, He's most famous for writing uh, a treatise called London Labour and the London Poor, mm. where he just went around and interviewed people who lived in, in sort of East London slums, people who were street traders, beggars, pickpockets, uh, prostitutes, all, all that kind of thing. Um, and it, and this, this had a huge impact, mostly on, on the wealthy of, um, of London. He was known already. He founded the influential Punch magazine, a very famous satirical magazine from that era. Um, although the, poor, the, the London poor themselves did not necessarily uh, like their representation in this work, <laughs> and the um, they founded the street the Street Traders Protection Association to keep Mayhew away from street wow. traders. Interesting. Um, and and just as as an aside, um, brief insight into Mayhew's life: he was one of the seventeen children of Joshua Mayhew. Um, Prodigious. Educated Westminster School, serving with the East India Company. That was just like a thing people did in those days. They they went yeah, to school they, and they... then they went to the East India Company for a bit. Yeah. Um, and then they had seventeen children. That's seventeen children. Um, but but back to the topic at hand, charity. Dickens, in particular, you know, this was very important in many of his novels. Perhaps most famously in A Christmas Carol. Um, which helped popularize the idea of Christmas as well, I believe. It, yes, yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, at, at least as we think of it uh, today, I suppose. Um, and th- so, so some of this is 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 coming from uh, a, a, an essay about about Dickens and, and Mayhew, um, written by from the Dickens Studies Annual, written by Anne Humphreys, and some of it's from, from an essay on the Voluntary Action History and Society blog by Frank Christensen. Uh, but, but between these two articles sort of argue that throughout his life, Dickens saw the, more, the emergence of new sort of forms of volunteerism, institutional charity, state-sponsored solutions to the problem of poverty. Um, and Dickens was trying to find ways to alleviate the problems that he saw whilst maintaining the fundamentals of the Victorian economic order. So, 
And, and Dickens founded charities himself, um, supported by, by Bernadette Coutts, who is the banking heiress. You may have seen Coutts Bank on the Strand, a rich private bank, rumoured to be where the Queen banks. Um, he established Urania College, which was a safe house for young women in Shepherd's Bush, um, where they, they could get out of sort of prostitution and crime and gain useful employment. Um, but it's not, at the end of the day, it wasn't charity that, that helped the people that Dickens sought to help. It was strong labour laws and strong sanitation laws in, in cities. Um, and this was sort of the, the, the criticism of it. There's Thomas Carlyle argued that, that philanthropy um, diverts the more humane and noble-minded away from real reform, instead um, focusing on uh, sort of trifles, being a distraction from the issue. But Frank Christensen argues that Dickens, um, this wasn't really the point for him. Dickens used charitable action and, uh, and philanthropy as a preliminary rather than a primary object of, of his writing. Um, so he essentially wants to, to sort of, through his writing, rescue philanthropy from uh, the influence of other Victorian institutions and make it a viable option in itself. Now, whether he, he intended that to be the be-all and end-all of, of, sort of social welfare is not entirely clear from the, the small insight right. I have into his life. Um, there, is a very that's, that's... there is a very interesting article by, uh, or essay, I should say, by George Orwell on Dickens, mm. um, whom he has read quite extensively and knows fairly well. And... Um, at the core of some of his arguments, because he makes quite a few, is that basically Dickens is in no means a revolutionary individual. And what that means is that largely speaking, in his representation of characters, particularly when he represents um, politicians or his lack of representation, say, of politicians, um, what he is uh, depicting is ultimately a system which is run by certain maybe more evil personalities, but a system that in and of itself kind of works and he never really denounces any of the aspects of the situations of the mm. any aspects of the of the system that we could uh, denounce as being root causes for some of these societal issues so at its core i think dickens thinks the system is functional some people abuse and disabuse of it and some people profit from it slightly more but maybe charity fits within that system because the role of charity, as you said, is not to interfere with affairs of states, but rather than just to complement them, you know. And so that's a position which is reflected in Dickens' work by his uh, political representations or his lack thereof. And that's that's an argument that George Orwell makes. Not saying that I necessarily yeah. agree with that, but it sort of seems relevant to bring up here. I, I think there's something to that. And I think that um, really for, for Dickens... Um, Charity emphasizes sort of noblesse oblige that the the, the, risk, the the rich in society owe something to the rest of society mm. and that um, obligé. in in getting obligé. people obligé yes yeah. um, it's often transcribed without the accent my apologies yeah yeah I know I know, <laughs> I know no 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 which is fair it, which that's how people say it but French obligé um, yeah noblesse obligé well let's just fuck it let's just do this podcast in French I'll learn it on the fly. Um, <laughs> Alors, Charles Dickens. Um, no, um, he, I think he had this view. Yeah, that the, the rich owed something to society, and that charity was perhaps a way of, of, and through his writing, of encouraging the rich to um, contribute to the society in that way. Whereas perhaps more uh, radical figures, such as Orwell, would have argued that it, it required a sort of um, more welfare state socialist solution. Yeah. Um, 
which which was actually and and this is a little away from topic but um this is why state protection measures actually came into to being in the first place in first of all in in bismarckian uh germany when you know bismarck um the, the power behind the throne uh instituted these these sort of uh, state welfare policies to stave off socialism so that's sort of bringing charitable into the um the, the political sphere at which point i suppose it stopped being charity it just becomes a, a service part of the mm. part of the uh social contract which uh which again creates a different relationship to to between it and the public that it's supposed to be benefiting or serving or at mm-hmm. this this you know this disposition of um and and i think maybe in some cases you know um, the welfare state, which is what what would replace charity effectively, you know, in, in many respects, um, has both advantages and disadvantages to it, and mm. as does the practice of um, putting charity aside from government. You know, I suppose it's whichever compromise you're most willing to make. And and you know, in ideal situations, as you referred to, for instance, charities being consultative in their relationships to um, governmental practices, for instance, or, or governmental organisations. Um, is is that it, when the two when the two interact with each other and and have like a seamless and complementary relationship, then then I think maybe you have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I I think that's true because, well, well so, so so something I think about charity is that um, really it the the, the benefit so so the things that, that Dickens was talking about largely, I, I do believe are the provision of the states, you know, making sure people have adequate housing, this and that, blah, 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 employment. There are certain niche areas where it's not so much that it isn't the role of the government, but I, I acknowledge that this is not a perfect world and, and the state can't do everything, right? And so in these perhaps more niche areas, um, the role of the charity makes sense. Perhaps, for example, uh, perhaps you, you've encountered a charity which I believe we both ha- had uh, caused to interact with at, at New College of Humanities called Find a Cure, which yeah. uh, does yeah. research or support into extremely rare diseases, right? Mm. Um, so something that something like fewer than three people in, in the country have this uh, disease each um, year or whatever. Um, and so that, that sort of makes sense because although it would be wonderful if, if the was state support for this it's just not realistic to invest hundreds of millions of pounds into drug right. cures for this thing that three people a year get um terrible as that sounds um i, I suppose that the, the the flip side of that is that in general charity is very poor right with yeah. the with a few notable exceptions the the bill and melinda gates foundation the, the welcome trust um a, a lot of charitable work is just making sure that there is enough money to do anything Right, and that I suppose is the um, it would would be where glorified where fundraising, would, glorified fundraising, and I suppose that would be where Dickens would be would be uh, harping on about the responsibilities of the of the wealthy to to make sure that charities can do the work that they that they do, mm. Mm. for sure. And uh, I mean that outlines quite well. I think one of the significant differences um, between institute like you know incorporation within the state and uh, operating independently and that's access to resource and capital yeah essentially you know and um and as a result the the human labor resources of the charity sector are are spent in differing ways based on how much access to capital there is um 
And of course, that then leads us into, you know, the conversation of, well, in some cases, for instance, uh, the government doesn't have money, you know, um, in, in less wealthy nations. Um, and yeah. so that invites the prospect of international charity, you know, which we could refer yeah. to as aid or um, emergency relief. Yeah, uh, before uh, just as, as something of a tradition on this um, on this podcast, which is when someone introduces a wonderful segue um, to just preempt that and uh, and and say something else. Um, I I do think it's important to note that you think the issue of governments not having money, um, the the economics of 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 state finances and new monetary theory uh, and all of this i think is a fascinating topic which probably is not for this podcast but let us accept for now that um in the poorer countries particularly ones that maybe don't control their own currency or their currency is not in demand on the international stage will have a much harder time financing uh, projects. And part of that is due to debts owed to richer countries through various um, problem- problematic lending schemes. But yeah. I just wanted to get that in. Nick, the Red Cross. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I, I found myself transitioning actually by accident because I was sort of just <laughs> reacting to your point. And then I was like, okay, well, this will take me here. So here we go. Um, but yeah, the Red Cross, I was transitioning actually into international uh, charity or charity on an international stage um, because, as I mentioned in the introduction, I, I myself looked a little bit into the Red Cross, something which I have mild experience of because I uh, worked there for a month and my dad worked there for like 25 years. So um, <laughs> between us, between the two of us, we've got a very between strong, we've got a yeah. very strong career. <laughs> If we average it out, we've both spent on yeah. average like 13 years there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 13 years and uh, like two and a half weeks on average. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, a mean two and a half weeks. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's, it's all there for the taking. And, uh, well, I wanted to provide a little bit of, a, of an insight into, um, the Red Cross and how it came to be founded and why it's still so potent today. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the Red Cross is very recognizable, I believe, because um, its its name identifies the symbol, which represents it <laughs> as well. And um, that yep. Red Cross on a white background, just the inverse of the Swiss flag, um, yep. which, is, which is also perhaps why I or we have an affinity for it. And um, why, in fact, I find myself in Switzerland, really, because my dad worked here for the Red Cross. Anyway, not important. The Red Cross is the product of a man called uh, Henry Dunant, who was indeed Swiss, and um, who, (laughs) well, the way they wrote it is it came upon the scene of a bloody battle, which is to suggest he he accidentally stumbled into a war when he was on a walk. (laughs) But um, in Solferino... Um... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in Italy, uh, between the armies of Austria and the Franco-Sardinian alliance, and um, yeah. there were estimated about forty thousand dead or dying, and there was very little medical attention being directed at the wounded. And uh, do not organize some of the locals to go help the soldiers basically uh, bind their wounds and, and, you know, 
feed them, comfort them, basically keep them alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when he returned to Geneva, he basically uh, called for the creation of national relief societies to assist those wounded in war, uh, which eventually led to the first of the Geneva Conventions. Right. So uh, the Red Cross was born in 1863 when uh, when uh, five men, including Dunant, set up the International Communi- uh, Committee sorry, for Relief to the Wounded which then became the International Committee of the Red Cross. Um, mm-hmm. And the following year, 12 governments, which I have here, some of which don't exist anymore. But, um, which ones instance, don't exist anymore? The, the Grand Duchy of Baden. Okay. Um, the Grand Duchy of Hesse. Duchy, but yes. Uh, yeah, Duchy, sorry. Uh, uh, Portugal and the Algarves. Pr- Kingdom of Prussia. Kingdom of Württemberg. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And then the rest well, is... These, Swiss, they, I mean, these all became Germany, like, 10 yeah, years yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, less yeah. than that. Like, <laughs> But it's interesting that, yeah, this was, this yeah. was actually, yeah, exactly, less than 10 years. And then, and then Bismarck. But anyway, um, that happened, and the first Geneva Conventions were signed, and basically, you know, um, uh, they essentially provided for... Um, the immunity from capture and destruction of all establishments for the treatment of wounded and sick soldiers, the -hmm. impartial reception and treatment of all combatants, the protection of civilians providing aid to the wounded, and the recognition of the Red Cross symbol as a means of identifying persons and equipment covered by the agreement. Right, Right. yes. So So this is the original sort of blue helmets. Basically, yeah, and that's basically the the mission statement of the Red Cross, as it were, uh, which is which is to yeah. So this this kind of total impartiality and immunity, as agreed upon by um, by by these twelve nations, and then th- these were that was ratified again in like nineteen o one, then again in nineteen nineteen, I believe, and then finally in nineteen forty nine. So, so yeah, you, so there were, sorry, go on. Can I interrupt briefly? Um, yeah, please do. I don't, may, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I found out the other day that um, it's not the Red Cross in all countries. In many predominantly Muslim countries, it's the Red, it's Crescent, the Red yeah. Crescent. And in Israel, it's the Red uh, Crystal, I believe. Yeah, well, it's the, it's, um, so, so the Red Cross has since evolved quite a bit. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, actually, sorry. One fun fact about Henry Dunant, um, born to a middle class Calvinist family in Geneva, 8th of May, 1828. Before he was founded in the Red Cross, he was already participating in charitable efforts. He was actually one of the crucial um, uh, members involved in creating the Young Men's Christian Association in 1852. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, wow. The YMCA. So, so, was um, that a Swiss organization? I don't know really much about um but i don't think so okay but because um he uh so from what i'm reading about him he was involved in the in the creation of the ymca and in the world alliance of ymcas okay so wow. uh, probably not probably probably he was involved in like a, a swiss or a i don't know european continental version of that and i have a know. funny feeling it was founded in london but i'm i'm not certain yeah, well, of that. For, so I, I mean i think that too but anyway, yeah. uh, we can check that up and maybe get back to you on a following episode or something. 
But uh, yeah, so the Red Cross has since expanded basically to every single country and, um, Mm -hmm. and they're all have their own representation of the Red Cross and the way in which the Red Crosses of various countries interact is particular. There is now also, um, the international federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, um, or the IFRCRC. Uh, as it's as it's known in shorthand, which helps coordinate all of these efforts, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the the Red Cross also, interestingly, has um, seven crucial values, which um, it indoctrinates into everyone who becomes a a worker there. Which uh, uh, is a treatment that I underwent, as did my father, like thirty years before me. And uh, the the values are as follows: humanity. Pretty self-explanatory. Impartiality, mm-hmm. uh, neutrality. Interesting that they distinguish between those two. Um, yeah, what is the distinction for them? Well, I think neutrality is the political bias, right? So it's like um, the the uh, well, let's see. Uh, involved in, in impartiality makes no discrimination as to nationality, race, religious belief, class, or political opinions. Right? It, it endeavors only to relieve suffering, giving priority to the most urgent cases of uh, distress. So I think it operates at a partial, like at a personal level, whereas neutrality is on a political spectrum, in a sense, uh, not taking mm-hmm. sides in any hostilities or engaging at any time in controversies of a political, racial, religious, or ideological nature. Interesting. Yeah. So again, okay. um, a blurry line between the two, but um, yeah. that's uh, that's the distinction. Independence. So um, uh, independent of government, right? The mm-hmm. biggest NGO in the world, basically. Um, always maintain their autonomy so that they may be in, able to act in accordance with their own principles, right? Can't be neutral if you're also being funded by a government, right? Um, although they can, but, um, as contractors, work for governmental projects, interesting. Like the British Red Cross, the British Red Cross has helped, helps, and often collaborates with a Department for International Development of the UK government. I see. Interesting. Yeah. But if they're if they're not funded by governments, where does their funding come from? Well, that's another problem. Um, but uh, so they they can receive funding based on projects. So, for instance, um, DFID. Right launched a project. So whilst I was working there, DFID launched a... I don't know if I could talk about this, but anyway, fuck it, who cares? That being uh, the Department for International Development in the UK. Yes, DFID. yes. Yeah. Um, they basically launched a program or an appeal saying that there were loads of migrants who were died, obviously, on the Mediterranean crossing, and mm. that a lot of those migrants came from further in Africa, and that they wanted mm. to be able to track and help coordinate safe passage to the Mediterranean, because actually as much as people were dying uh, in the water, people were also dying like in the desert and were having difficulty crossing borders and this and that. And governments were struggling to create accountability or to connect at the African governments of the countries to which they were passing. Um, Interesting. To blah, blah, blah. Right. I, I have some insight into that, which uh, is for another podcast, but cool. Right, so so I look forward to hearing that. Actually, I don't know what that is, but uh, you, so you read that essay, but that's fine. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, the, yes, yeah, it's true. Um, but anyway, the the um, the appeal was launched, um, and it was like cool. So, like with this many funds, these are the objectives. Do you think that you, as a Red Cross, would have the resources to boom, 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 be able to accomplish these things? 
So you'd get funding mm-hmm. for the project if you were doing it on behalf of the government, say. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, it, and then, and then it was like, oh, well, this is a big project, but like the Norwegian Red Cross have big resources there or another NGO have other resources there. So we can come together and collaborate and then share our resources and boom, boom, boom. And then the Red Cross also do a hell of a lot of fundraising and they get right. a hell of a lot of money from donors. And then uh, that's another thing, right. which is, which is, um, problematic, right? Because, uh, one of the big debates whilst I was there was, um, should they accept funding from a substantial amount of funding? From Marlboro, the cigarette make, the cigarette company. Right. Right. And I think they chose, they decided against it because right. the Red Cross as a symbol was too important to jeopardize. But then yeah. the, the suggestion is in order to protect the symbol, you're rejecting this funding, which yes, maybe comes from a controversial source. Are you then contributing to or, pr- you know, preventing, preventing yourself from having access to resources that would potentially save lives? I, I suppose it's a it's a very interesting like calculation, right? Because you, yeah, you're preventing yourself from a- accessing resources that save lives. But if there's this um, this sort of corporate goodwill that's attached to Marlboro as a result of this, does that mean that they can continue peddling their product for longer, which will also well, that's kind of a thing. It's a win-win, right? Like um, yeah. in the case of Marlboro, they're really trying to clean their image. They're they're, they're whitewashing yeah. their money, basically. Or their part, their their image. Um, so yeah, again, difficult things to weigh up. Um, and and then yeah, so I mean, obviously the next. So there are three more values, uh, all of which are are difficult um, and pose their own problems. The first is voluntary service. So it's a mm-hmm. it's a voluntary relief organization, not prompted in any manner by desire for gain, which means that it's not supposed to be profitable, but obviously. Um, it employs people full time and people who help also have to eat themselves. So right. they need to be paid. And then how much they should be paid? How much is it, is it right that, um, in order to attract talent, say from the private sector, that managers or, um, director, directors, ge- director generals, whatever the equivalent of CEO is, should be earning, um, competitively in relation yeah. to the private sector in order to attract that top talent. Or does that go totally against the values of charity? Because those resources are money, are resources which are being divested from the aid fund, the emergency well, it, fund. It, it's interesting you say that. I, there's um, it, one of the the other things that, that stuck out for me from uh, doing good better by William McCaskill, which I think I've mentioned before on this podcast. Um, which for for a book I I didn't particularly enjoy. I've mentioned quite a lot, um, <laughs> but he he made the argument that that actually to this end we we probably we think about charity all wrong, right? Like you we judge charity based on how much of their funds goes to the the action of the charity, right? And saying if oh um, you know we only spend five percent of our of our funding on administrative costs and the rest all goes directly to 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 help people, we think that's that's great. That's what we want. Um, but he made the argument, which I thought was interesting, that if if Apple came out and said we spend ninety five percent of our funding on R and of our money on R and D and the rest is, is and like we on the shoestring. Well, for Apple, that's not a shoestring, but you know what I mean. For the rest of people, that that's the the best the budget for everything else. We wouldn't think Apple was a good company because of that. We would want them mm. to be spending money on on talent and. Um, all the all the other yeah. things that go into an organization of course than, than and i think just, and i think there's a lot uh, of value to that and there's and i mean we will discuss this on a different episode but 
that's where like mm. social entrepreneurship is interesting, right? Because it's marrying right. some of those values and resources. But again, it's like you you make compromise whatever decisions yeah. you choose to take, and um, yeah. perhaps in treating it too much like a corporation and a business, perhaps you lose sight of the values and and yeah. lose sight of what it is that you're actually trying to do. You know, and like to what? And I mean, yes, of course, at certain levels, talent is necessary and important, but um, certain things, certain humanitarian things and tasks can be done by anyone i think you know um, yeah. anyone with yeah, a will to, to learn them so there should be money invested in training i agree for instance but not necessarily in the recruitment of talent at certain levels um, and maybe that's sure. a, that's a ridiculous opinion but you know that's just a suggestion um, and then finally the two the two other values which again i'll say together because i think they relate to one another is unity mm-hmm. which is that um there can only be one red cross society in any one country um, and mm-hmm. that it must be open to all and universality that it's um, a worldwide institution in which all societies have equal status and share equal responsibilities and duties in helping each other. Now, the thing about unity and universality, which complement each other because it means every society is equal to every other society and unity means that it has to show a united front means that although the Red Cross has technically access to resources from all of the Red Crosses around the world, in the case of... Um, uh, an emergency or say for instance responding to a tsunami or a hurricane or whatever it might be unity as a principle means that the red cross must be represented and directed by the local red cross so if the british right. red cross wants to participate um in the relief works for a tsunami that has just hit barbados or something like that um mm-hmm. the 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 Barbadian Red Cross has to coordinate the effort. No, the other Red right. Crosses can't just come in and parachute, which for the sake of logistics and of representation and branding makes sense in the long run. But again, potentially, particularly because this is not a development organization, but like an emergency response organization, time is of the essence and so is the gathering of resources. And that can impede yeah. that process. But again, it chooses to prioritize its symbol of unity above those other things. Well, I think that, I think it, yeah, that can be tricky in specific instances, but I guess it has to, right? Because, because mm-hmm. then, um, it falls into the, um, development aid is, is colonialism by another name sort yeah, of issue, yeah, which yeah. I think we'll talk about a bit later for on. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And I think, so one other interesting thing I find, which is again, potentially problematic is that it, one of the values I talked about in uh, neutrality and impartiality mm-hmm. is that the Red Cross is one of the very rare organizations that can go into almost any territory. Like some, some right. terrorist groups, I mean, like it can, it can frequent like, um, Taliban territories, um, right. and Al-Shabaab. It, it cannot go into ISIS territories because the ISIS, ISIS refuses to recognize the Red Cross as a legitimate, um, a party. Mm. So, but in almost every other scenario, the Red Cross is welcome in, in, in almost everywhere. And, and so it has a much broader, reach than um than uh many other uh, functions of government and international affair international affairs and so uh, for that reason and it's because of its symbol it's because that symbol so that symbol really can't afford to be blemished it has to remain pure and so that's why so much attention is paid to that you know um that's interesting the weight placed on a symbol yeah yeah if if it didn't yeah i mean it is one of i think the world's strongest symbols yeah, um, definitely. And if if it didn't um, 
hold on to the principle of neutrality, that would get very messy very quickly. And so I think all of those other things divulge from that is that the, is, is, is that it's not, it's impartial in its judgment. It's just there to help those who have been hurt and who need relief. That makes um that makes a lot of sense and uh, is a wonderful insight into the into the Red Cross. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you, Nick. Um, just just before we we wrap up and go to the um go, go to the the palate cleansers, I wonder if you just have a, a brief brief thought on on what the role of charity for for individuals should be. This you know the Good Life Cast. How how should we incorporate charity into our own lives? Should we should we give money? Should we uh, volunteer? Should we do both? Should we what what should we focus on yeah i mean uh well you know i think there are different ways in which we choose to help and different times in our lives at which we um focus ourselves on 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 helping others and we can help in a variety of different ways you know and and you know we can help directly or indirectly and and you know at what point is helping others or charity um at what point is that line drawn you know, between that and just mm-hmm. kind of selfish pursuit and, and capitalism and industrialization. Um, but, you know, for instance, like, you know, whether you're in politics, whether you're in business, whether you're in journalism, whether you're in, in humanitarian work, um, you, you have, you're, you're confronted with different compromises and, um, yeah. uh, but you're also given different opportunities to help. And I yeah. think, so I think it's, it's looking out for that. I think, um, we don't all have to be career humanitarians necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. I think all of our skills are adaptable to charity. So, you know, you, as a lawyer, you can help. Um, as an accountant, you can help. As a doctor, you can certainly help. You know, the, anything, anything you have qualifications for in the, the, the rest of the world, shall we say, um, you can redirect yeah. those resources towards charity. As an artist, you can help. Um, and so I think keep, keep an eye towards that. And, um, even if you don't, um, explicitly, uh, enact charity, I think live in the spirit of charity, which is actually a very mm-hmm. Dickensian notion, I guess. But, um, you know, uh, one of the big things I think for the Red Cross and one of the things in which, one of the ways in which people, um, develop fulfillment when they work these kind of jobs is that, you know, systemic change is very difficult and slow to come by, which yeah. is not to say that we shouldn't try and achieve that. But, um, sometimes you have to find your sense of, satisfaction and salvation from what you're doing other ways and that can be on yeah. a personal basis you know so um the red cross or like the charity industry if we can call it that um even though that doesn't sound great is one of those places where it it, it is very difficult to um measure exactly one's impact like everywhere else but um perhaps more so than in other places like the human impact is is far greater valued than the bottom line. Yes, I, you know? I think I, I think that's 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 a wonderful insight that that um, different uh, skills skills apply in different locations. Um, I I would also just add to that um, a, again a Dickensian notion. This is one one of Dickens's famous quotes, which is that um, charity begins at home. Right. So, uh, and that's to be fair. Often used um, it sort of incorrectly to imply that people should should focus nationally rather than internationally i don't think that's true at all uh necessarily um but what it, i do think that like y- you know helping your um neighbor to 
paint their fence when they're they're perhaps elderly and can't do it so easily is, is a form of charity even though we wouldn't normally describe it that way and that looking out for um the people in your sort of community your your local network is is, is a very important in the spirit mm. of charity sort of thing um give money if you can i highly advocate that you know uh, causes that are important to you um red cross wwf unicef whatever give give a little bit every month if you can afford it but if not um then yeah be charitably minded and, and help out those those around yeah. Yeah, for sure. And be enthusiastic about it and like never lose hope in, in, in I don't know, bringing uh, improvement to situations. But um, don't expect too much of, of, of that either or of yourself in that process. You know, it's a, it's a long haul to fix the whole world. So, so exactly. To take it take it day by day, exactly. case by case. Exactly. Um, now, with that rather... Um, sweet taste in in my mouth i'm, I'm gonna need a palate cleanser Nick, but um <laughs> anything to plug first i bet you do uh yeah i just released a new music video has uh come out which you can find um either through my soundcloud come out meets world my facebook come out meets world my instagram come out meets world or my youtube come out meets world and all of those accounts link to one another and themselves so um it's there it's called leaning Listen I've, to uh, it, I've seen it. it it's it's irritatingly stylish and um a great track <laughs> thank you thank you adam your your bitterness makes it all the more sweet <laughs> do you have anything to plug yourself um at no the real videos, adam johnson no on videos instagram in a, in a in a couple in a couple in a couple of weeks no 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 i've got one on the back burner but it's just been um I don't know. I haven't. I haven't done one for a while. Been a lot, you know. But uh, but yeah, I hopefully will have one up well. for Coming the next back one. Stronger than out. ever, Adam on Earth. Exactly, Adam on Earth on YouTube and the real Adam Johnson on Instagram. Um, nope. and, I like that. I actually like Adam on Earth on YouTube. Very. Yeah. <laughs> <It's kinda> like... <laughs> Adam on Earth on YouTube. Yeah. Um, a very small. It, the thing about YouTube is, is it even on Earth? Where are com- where's computer information kept? I don't know. Space is it space, Nick? Satellites. We man. should do a we should do a tech podcast. I think it's actually a big warehouse in Palo Alto, but whatever. We should. We should. Once we've covered like living well, let's do <laughs> science and technology. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, until then, um, I'm I'm excited for my dive underwater. If if that's what we're learning about today, <laughs> that is indeed what we're learning about today. Um, I was. I decided I would. I would look up oceans more broadly okay. rather than the animals um, and creatures that live in them. And I came across the striking fact that half of the United States is apparently underwater. And that's... Um, what do you uh, mean? Unbelievable. Uh, see, I like how you're playing. See, Adam, I, I showed this to Adam earlier. and um, Nick, and you he... didn't have to pull back the kimono. My acting is wasted if I you're going to tell them that was it's good. acting. Your acting was good, but I just felt dishonest. I don't want to lie to the listeners, you know. <sighs> but, <laughs> listeners, I'm sorry I lied to you. Tell me about <laughs> yeah, the sorry, thing no, you're going to say. You look back. Oh, this is terrible. Okay. <laughs> yes, um, most of, well, half, half exactly of the US apparently is beneath um, the sea. And... Uh, and that's because of all of the territory around the shores of America, essentially. And uh, mm. that's that's a very exciting. There is a, an article um, interviewing a, a man called Robert Ballard, who is an explorer, who um, yeah, who discovered the Titanic thirty years ago. Um, 
I, I think well, rediscovered is perhaps a better. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how they phrased it. <laughs> um, he he says he he basically is 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 teeming with excitement at the prospect of what could be discovered on American territory that we don't know about yet. You know, I wonder if um, that's particularly concentrated around because because there's a certain zone like these these naval exclusion zones right around the mm. coast and so i wonder if how concentrated that is around the hawaiian islands because they have so much more coast going around in a circle yeah i don't know i don't know um i i will i will look into it and and inform myself if you care inform yourself i should have done more research for this but there we go i was struck by the fact i thought that'll do and here we are excellent adam um, I I do I have a fun fact from factsite.com, um, short one, which is banging your head against the wall for one hour burns one hundred and fifty <laughs> calories. Six pack, baby. So I'm off to uh, I'm off to get a workout in. <laughs> um, Nick, uh, thank you so much for potting with me as always. Thank you, Adam. I like doing the introductions. It set me off well. I mean, I'm going to return to my life of depression as soon as the cameras goes off. But um, well, it was it was fun. I, it was fun to be optimistic for a brief moment in time. Nick, I feel for you. I feel a feeling, um, love and respect, and and sending all those good thoughts out into the world. Why do you always wait until the closing sentences of this podcast to go into some deluge? And now I'm doing it. We've switched roles now, Nick. Where I'm the one who's rambling, but it's still I feel like because of something you did. Oh my god, dear listener, thank you so much for putting up with this love and rage. Uh, see you later. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> love and rage.